Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Bond. James Bond. 007 is a masculine film icon. He's handsome, debonair, and dangerous. He completely epitomizes the French idea of savoir-faire, the ability to know what to do in any situation. Bond is so darn manly, it'd be easy to think that he was purely the creation of author Ian Fleming's imagination. But in fact, Bond was inspired by a real-life World War II spy, and his life and career was even more Bond-like than James Bond. My guest today on the show has written a biography of the real-life inspiration for James Bond. His name is Larry Loftus, and he's the author of the book, Into the Lion's Mouth, the true story of Dusko Popoff, World War II spy, patriot, and the real-life inspiration for James Bond. Today on the show, we talk about Dusko Popoff and his career as a double agent during World War II. Larry and I discuss how Dusko got involved with spying, the insanely dangerous missions he went on, and the real-life encounter between him and Ian Fleming that inspired one of popular culture's most iconic characters. Really fascinating show. When you're done, check out the show notes at aom.is bond for links to you know, explore more into this topic. So without further ado, Larry Loftus and Into the Lion's Mouth. Larry Loftus, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brad. Uh, so you have a new book out that uh, was just a fantastic read. It's a it's an actual it's a true story, but it read like a thriller. It's called Into the Lion's Mouth: The True Story of Dusko Popoff, World War II spy, patriot, and the real life inspiration for James Bond. When I was re- I, I had no idea this guy existed, and when I finished the book, I was like, Why don't more people know about this guy? Because he contributed so much to the Allied cause during World World War II. So I'm curious, how did you get started researching um, Popoff's espionage career and his connection to Ian Fleming's James Bond? Well, I actually stumbled across it. I was working on basically just a, an historical fiction novel and wanted to do espionage because I like the area, I like the genre. And so I thought, you know, I better do some research to find out what actual spies did so that my story is believable. Uh, so I started Googling and researching best spy ever, greatest spy, most daring spy, and all roads led to Popoff. His name just kept popping up again and again. So then I started focusing on him and researching him. And I quickly found out, holy cow, this guy did more in real life than I'm making up for my fictional character. So I switched then just to focusing on him. And then, you know, my fiction novel basically became a nonfiction but he did so many things, so many unbelievable things, so many cool things that it does read like a like a a thriller novel. 
Right. I mean, it reads like a James Bond movie script. You're like, there's like Correct. scenes in it's like, that's just straight out of James Bond, how it happened. Yeah. Yep. Well, well, there's there's a reason for that, which I know we'll get to in a moment. Right. So let's get some background on Popoff because he's an interesting character. Um, he uh, was a double agent for the United Kingdom and for the Germans, but he was primarily uh, working for the United Kingdom, the Allies. But he was the Serbian playboy from Yugoslavia. So how did he end up becoming a double agent during World War II for sure. the Allies and for the Nazis? Well, he was not a double agent for the Germans. He was a straight agent for the Germans. He was a double agent for us. Gotcha. Uh, for the UK and then uh, and then for the for the US when he came over here. But he came from a wealthy family in Yugoslavia. And he, like us, was a lawyer. He earned a law degree at Bel- University of Belgrade and then went to Freiburg in Germany to get a doctorate in law. And uh, when he was there, he meets his best friend, Johnny Jepson, Johan Jepson, uh, a German who is brilliant and just becomes a, basically his best friend. They both hated the Nazis and uh, they just hit it off well together. Johnny was very wealthy, came from a very wealthy shipping family, which still exists today, the Jepson family. Um, and then uh, Popoff was expelled from Germany right after he graduated in 1937. He was expelled for making uh, derogatory remarks against the Third Reich. And so he was kicked out of the country, and then when war breaks out, he suddenly gets a telegram from Johnny that says he needs to meet immediately. Uh, and, and, and Johnny's coming to Yugoslavia to meet with him and says, you know, meet me on this date. And then basically lays out the cards and says, I, I'm a, I'm recruited. I'm a German, I'm a German recruiter. I'm in the Anwar, which is the, which was the military intelligence for the Germans. And he said, I need your help. I need you. And this is his best friend. He said, I need your help. It won't be a big deal. I need you to do a little work for me. Just go to some cocktail parties, gather some information and so Popoff was torn. I mean, he's, he, he despises the Nazis, but he knows that Johnny is stuck because if you're in Germany and you're a German, you either work, you either join the military or you're executed for treason. So he knew his best friend was in a bind. So he said, okay, I'll help you. Um, you know, so he's essentially recruited by Johnny into the Abwar as a German agent and then immediately goes to the British and says, hey, I've just been recruited. I'm a German spy. How would you like all of my information? I'd love to be a British double agent. So that's what happens. He goes to the embassy, and they said, uh, yeah. And then they send him to London, and he gets vetted, and from there on, it's it's history. It's history, and that's where all the, the exciting adventures happen. Um, yep. So one thing I thought was great about the book is I learned a lot about espionage during World War II, because I think that's an overlooked aspect of the war, or most wars, actually. Because you know, everyone knows about the Battle of the Bulge, Normandy, Midway, but those battles relied on intelligence. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us about uh, the status of spies during World War II, or any war, actually, and why that status made the job so dangerous? Well, it's critical, number one. And the, if you've seen recently, there are a lot of books out about uh, even the spies that George Washington used and how critical that was in the Revolutionary War. The spies are useful because you need information. You need accurate information so you know where to send your troops, where to keep your troops out of, and so forth. And, and when it gets messed up, like Dunkirk, then people die. So the spies, every side always uses spies. I mean, they try to be under the radar and invisible, but they're out there. And if they're caught, of course, they're tortured for their information and then executed. 
spies are not covered under the um, uh, under the convention, under the Geneva Convention. They're not covered, so they're you know they're on their own if they get caught. So Popov and every other spy, if you agree to become a spy, you are taking on the most dangerous job ever because it's not just that they're going to kill you. They are going to kill you, but they, they're going to torture you to get all of your information, all of the codes, all of the other spies that are involved so that they can then, you know, go after your whole network. So on the, on the German side, and he ended up working for so many different agents on the German side, he's recruited as an Adwar agent, which is the German military intelligence. But then you also have, as soon as he joins later when he's in Lisbon, the Gestapo want to use him. Uh, and the SD, the, the, it's a long cedar beans, it's a long German name, but the, that's the Nazi intelligence. They want to use him. So essentially, even on the German side, he has three masters. And then on the British side, he has two masters. He has MI5, which is counterintelligence, kind of like our FBI, but it's counterintelligence domestic. Uh, and then you have MI6, which is, which is straight foreign intelligence. And then later he comes over to, he's loaned by the British to the U.S. and he, uh, he works for the FBI as an agent, essentially. Not a formal agent, but they called him an informant, but for, for all practical purposes, he's an agent. So he ends up, you know, essentially having like six masters, if you will. And so, I mean, what was the incentive for these guys to become spies if it was so dangerous and they weren't protected by the laws of uh, war? Well, for Popoff, it, it was all about, um, you know, patriotism. And that's why it's, it's in the title, World War II Spy Patriot, because he's, a, he's from a neutral country. Yugoslavia is neutral when World War II breaks out. And so he's got Germany on one side, he's got the UK on the other side, and he's, he, you know, his best friend is German. He just came from Germany. He was expelled, though. He absolutely despises the Nazis. And he saw what Churchill saw and every and everyone else that was paying attention that this is a madman. Hitler's a madman. And that if he's not stopped, you know, millions of people are going to die. So Popov sees that because he was there. I mean, he was in Germany when they started to crack down. He was arrested by the Gestapo. He was thrown in prison and he would have been executed. But for something that <laughs> and I won't spoil it in the book, but something happens that gets him out that springs him out but had that not occurred he, he would have rotted in prison and probably died there and probably been executed and i mean did did papa sort of have i mean did his personality suit this like was there something about his personality he was like yeah this is this is exactly what i do it's dangerous i love risk i mean was there oh, something yeah, about no doubt. there's no doubt about it i mean he it was the perfect storm to create the perfect spy because you've got a guy and it's not just that he's patriotic and it's not just that he, I mean, essentially it's easy for us. You have good and evil and Hitler's evil. So you're going to fight against Hitler, but his country's neutral. He doesn't have to do this. He can just stay in his neutral, neutral. He had a wonderful life. He was a lawyer. He had a great law practice. He had great clients. Um, he had a, he had a, came from a wealthy family. He had a very nice yacht. So he didn't have to do this, but part of it was, patriotism and he wanted to stop the evil that he saw in Hitler. And then the other part, if he's going to do it, what better way to do it than as a spy? Because he was, this guy was brilliant. He had a doctorate in law. He spoke five languages. He was cultured. The Germans and the British both loved him because he was so cultured. He could go into any setting, any society setting, 
He could meet with prime ministers. He could meet with kings and did the king of Yugoslavia and did. So he was a guy, but he had, he had ice water in his veins. And so he could pull it off and, and, and did, but he was so cultured. He was a great athlete. He was a, he was a world-class, no, I don't know if it was world-class, but he was a top-notch water polo player, horseback rider. He'd won two shooting contests. He was a good boxer. I mean, this guy just had all of the skills to be the perfect spy. And he loved, And actually, he did like, he liked danger because it was exciting. He wanted to do something. He was a lawyer, but he didn't really, you know, kind of like us. He, he wasn't really all that crazy about it because after a while, just office work becomes drudgery. And he wanted excitement. Right. And he got it in spades. So yeah, it's starting to sound like James Bond a bit. And the guy was also good looking and he had like charming, his- incredible and this is all over the, the MI five files, which used to be classified and now are declassified, but it's all over the all over the files, all of his personalities. He was incredibly charming. He was handsome. Again, he was athletic, highly intelligent, but he knew how to treat women. He knew how to charm women. He was socially, extremely socially skilled. So he was just, I mean, again, he was James Bond before James Bond. That's why he and Fleming based it on him. Right. So um, he he started doing these missions for the Germans and the British, but he ended up in Lisbon and Portugal, uh, which played an important role for both German and British spies. Why is that? Both during World War II, there's really only two countries that are neutral, ostensibly neutral on continental Europe, and that's Spain and and Portugal. And Spain was only really ostensibly neutral because uh, uh, they were Hitler had actually uh, provided Franco with military uh, equipment and planes and so forth during their civil war. So they were really siding, sort of secretly siding with um, with Germany. But Portugal was completely neutral, and Lisbon and, secondly, Madrid, those were the two hubs where every country sent their spies and diplomats. So in both cities, Lisbon and Madrid, um, you would have hundreds of diplomats that were really spies. I mean, diplomats and spies embedded within the diplomats. So, uh, like, I got the, I got the actual um, embassy list of the personnel and uh, from the it was in the Portuguese secret police files, but it shows the the actual embassy list of both sets, the German set and the um, and the British set that are in that are in Lisbon. And I'm going down the list. OK, this guy's a spy. This guy's this guy's Gestapo. This guy's SD. This guy's Abwar, um, top off supervisors on 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 the German side, on Karstoff is listed there and he's just listed basically as an attache. So it, it was the hub. It was where um, all of the country sent spies. We sent military people there. So there would be military uh, attaches there, diplomats, spies. And um, uh, so they were all, it, it was the bottleneck. That's where they all went. Right. And then, and then also Lisbon was like the perfect background, adding to this sort of spy mystique because it's kind of a exotic romantic place. There's casinos, fancy hotels. Oh, no question. The Actually, if you look at the map, you'll see Lisbon, which is a beautiful city. And then you'll see just to the west of it, you'll see a storal, which is a, it's a suburb. 
And the best way to describe it is just think of the French Riviera. I mean, it, it is essentially the Portuguese Riviera and was built that way. It was a small fishing town, a store was, that they decided around the turn of the century to build into this beautiful resort area that would compete with the French Riviera, and they did. So they built the Palacio, which is a world-class hotel, still is. Um, they built this massive casino, which was the biggest in Europe at the time. Um, you've got the ocean there, so they've got this beautiful beach. You've got a castle right there on the beach. Um, you just had the, the beautiful climate. You just had all of these things that really made it the perfect destination. And they built shops and restaurants and so forth. And a lot of a lot of royalty uh, were going there to vacation, so they built these beautiful homes for the royalty to stay in. So it was just an incredibly romantic place for for espionage to happen. And and um, you know there were a couple of books that I used that, that gave me the background in Lisbon, and it's just fascinating. Right. And this in Lisbon, this is where Ian Fleming bumped into Popoff, correct? Correct. So the, yeah, how did how did how did so I guess it's interesting. A lot of people don't know that Ian Fleming, before he was a spy writer, was actually part of naval intelligence. I guess for the British. Correct, correct. He was in naval intel or in British intelligence. You, you really have three groups. You have MI6, foreign intelligence. You have MI5, domestic intelligence, and then you have the British naval intelligence. And for uh, and naval intelligence director, the director was Admiral John Godfrey. Godfrey, th- there are two boards that supervise Popoff and, and all of the spies. There was the planning board at the top, which was called the W Board, and that had uh, Admiral Godfrey on there and Stuart Menzies, who was the MI6 uh, director, which, which Ian Fleming would call M, but he went by C. Fleming, of course, had to change it, but he went by C. But anyway, so you had this, this over arching supervisory board that does the planning. And then you had a second board, which was called the double cross committee, which was much more involved and basically handled the day-to-day affairs of these guys. So everything Popoff did on a daily basis, the double cross committee knew about it, had planned and so forth. Well, Admiral Godfrey was one of only a couple of people that actually was on both the W board and the double cross committee. So Godfrey knew everything about Popoff. I mean, had to okay it. I mean, he was in the decision-making group for both, both, uh, both boards there. Fleming was his personal assistant. He was his secretary. So as, as his personal assistant, he was his right-hand man. Fleming was, was the ear for everything that Godfrey heard. So and early in the summer of uh, 1941, Godfrey's going to go over to the United States to meet with um, President Roosevelt and try to persuade him to start a foreign intelligence basically like to mimic MI6, because the U.S. doesn't have one. All we have at the time is the FBI. And Hoover wanted to control everything, including foreign intelligence. And the British said that that's idiotic and they didn't trust Hoover anyway. So they, he went over, Godfrey went over to meet with FDR to persuade him to start a foreign intelligence like the MI6, which became for the U.S. the OSS, which is the forerunner to the CIA. When he takes this trip, of course, he takes his right hand man with him, Ian Fleming. So Fleming goes with him. And Fleming meets with the other uh, underlings, and basically Fleming 
uh, rights, the essentially rights the charter to the OSS, which becomes our CIA. Most people don't realize that Fleming had a connection to our intelligence as well. When they come back, uh, both going over and coming back, they stay in Lisbon on, on a layover. And when they come back is when when Fleming runs into Popov. Godfrey knows Ian Popov or Popov was involved in a incredibly labyrinthine scam to basically steal the Germans blind through money laundering, if you can believe it. So as part of this scam, Popov works this incredible feat to essentially steal all this money from him which he does. And of course, Godfrey had to approve this. It was called the Midas plan. And uh, so Godfrey knows all about it and presumably informed Ian Fleming of what was going on. Well, Popoff gets the money right as Fleming is coming back. And when Fleming is staying in uh, Lisbon on the way back, he knows that Popoff just got all of this money. And it was, it was, uh, Forty thousand dollars, which in today's you know would be like you know six hundred thousand in cash. So Fleming follows Popoff, and Popoff kept it on because he couldn't tr- he couldn't trust that m- amount of money in the safe, in the hotel safe, and he couldn't trust leaving in his room because his room was always searched by by different countries, different spies, and so forth. So he kept it on him, and he is followed by Ian Fleming. This is uh, about August 1 is about the date that this happened, 1941. So he follows Popov from the Palacio, where Fleming had stayed in the Palacio on the prior trip. And there's this hotel spy bar that's kind of famous where they both went. So he follows him from the Palacio to, uh, to get, then to get a drink. And he's just shadowing him, you know. But, but Popov notices, hey, there's this guy following me. And then uh, to dinner and then to the casino. So when he's in the casino, he knows that Fleming is watching. Well, if I can segue back to Casino Royale, have you read that? Yeah, I have. If you look at Casino Royale, it is a thinly veiled recreation of what actually occurred in Casino Royale. I mean, in Casino Astoral in 1941. So Casino Royale just mirrors everything that actually happened. So the town Royale is essentially historical, and the Brittany Cliffs are the Cliffs of Cascade, and the Splendide and the Hermitage hotels are the Palacio and the Parquet, and they both have fountains, and they both are decorated the same, and they both have red curtains, and they both have a casino next door, and they both have majestic gardens out there. All of that was just recreated uh, identically from Casino Historical to Casino Royale. And it, it continues right to what happened in the famous Casino Royale scene, which is the casino scene, which is the, the heartbeat of, of the story. That was recreated. Fleming is Mathis and Popoff is Bond and the Shifra was a gentleman named Block. And and in both the real life and in the fictional version, the, the, the British agent is an MI6 agent, James Bond, Fusco Popoff. Uh, the agent watching is Mathis, who's really Ian Fleming, and then of course the villains. And in the in the book version, Le Chiffre is fleeing the Russians. In the real version, what which actually happened, Block had was fleeing the Nazis. And the money that is bet in real life was MI6 money 
and in the story with MI6 money. So it all matches identically what happened in real life to what happened in the fictional version of the of the novel. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And, and also, too, you look at um, the way Ian Fleming originally imagined James Bond. Um, it just—I mean, it was sort of like—I mean, it looked like Popoff. It was sort of dark-skinned, dark hair, um, and I think it sort of—it's uh, not like the James Bond we think of today. Well, it, it, everything matches. In fact, if you look in the back of my book. There's a chart, and I compare all of the people through history who have the most common names that have been suggested as a model or an inspiration for Bond. And, and it, uh, so I include what we see from Casino Royale, the first James Bond novel, to these, these potential agents who he could have based it on. And only one matches everything, and that's Duska Popov. And you start with the physical appearance, which is you have this dark hair comb straight back. And I, um, I actually had a blog article where I showed the picture of Dusko Popov's having dinner. He's in, he's in a tuxedo with Ian Fleming's commission sketch of what James Bond looked like. And they're identical. I mean, they look, it looked like the artist was looking at Popov as he was drawing it. Um, but he's got black hair comb straight back, short crops. Uh, both have blue-gray eyes, not just blue or not just gray, but blue-gray. Both have blue-gray eyes. Uh, they're clean-shaven. Um, they're, they're both athletic. They're both good with their hands. Uh, Popoff speaks five languages. James Bond speaks three. Uh, James Bond is a good shot. Popoff had just won two shooting contests. I mean, it just mirrors it all the way down. So there's no question this was... This was the guy he was basing it on. That's right. And um, so, yeah, after Lisbon, uh, Popoff ends up in the United States for a while. Um, he was sent there by the Germans, correct? Yes. The, the Germans sent him to New York. He was, uh, this is almost hard to believe, he was Britain's greatest agent and he was Germany's greatest agent, or so they thought. They he was they thought he was so successful. MI five when he goes to visit his controller, his supervisor in Lisbon, Major von Karstoff, MI five is is creating all of these documents and false maps and things that are that look good. And it's just that either the information was old, it was already public, or they made it just a little bit incorrect. And so that was to obviously to deceive them. But the Germans it looked fabulous and pop off. You know the Germans. One of his, uh, one of his, uh, one of the uh, uh, colonels on the other side said it looked like the work of ten men. And as in saying that, as and, and this was as Jepson gives him ten thousand dollars. So be so pleased, Admiral uh, Pekenbrock said it looked like the work of ten men. And Dusko had to be smiling and thinking, well, it kind of was ten men that worked for MI5. So anyway, he was their best spy. So they send him. They decide, well, we're going we're gonna to use him to set up a whole network in, in the United States. So they sent him to New York to start a spy network there, number one, and secondly, to investigate the defenses of Pearl Harbor, which uh, there's, you know, Japan had been asking the Germans to do this for some time. And so they figured that they'll kill two birds with one stone and send Popoff to do both, both tasks. So that's how he ended up in the United States. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. 
Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? 
Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. But like while he was there, he really wasn't doing anything for the Germans. It seems like he's just spending their money. Uh, you mean when he was in New York? Yeah, well, yeah, when he was in New York. Well, he he was. If you read the if you read my book, you'll see that he was really frustrated because his hands were tied. He's the star agent that 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 the British are just drooling over because he's so good. And you know they're thinking, God, this is great. We'll get we'll get him to do the same thing and in the United States. The problem was Hoover just had every character trait that made it impossible. He was xenophobic. He hated foreigners. He hated spies. So he doubly hated double agents, didn't trust them, didn't trust Popoff. And uh, while Hoover assisted in bringing them in, bringing him in by contacting the state department to, to help get his visa, once Popoff was in, all he wanted to use him for was bait to catch real other German spies, not to do counterespionage, just simply as bait. And Popoff just hated that. You know, you've got a thoroughbred and you're basically you're basically using him as a walking horse. And so uh, Popoff couldn't send messages. They wouldn't even they wouldn't let him send radio messages. They had the FBI do it. Popoff couldn't see it. Uh, it was just, it was just the worst case scenario and, um, they weren't sending any good information. MI5 worked really hard to send good information to the Germans through Popov that looked absolutely wonderful. It was just wrong. Um, but it wasn't wrong by a lot. It was just, again, like information that, that happened the day before. So they can't really use it. But when they first see it, it looks brilliant. But uh, Hoover wanted no part of doing any of that. And so the Germans obviously figured out this God, well, his work really got bad all of a sudden. Right. And then you get into the book. And this is kind of interesting. So we won't get into the details. It spoils it. But, you know, J. Edgar Hoover's obstructionism with Popoff um, played a, you know, possibly played a role in Pearl Harbor. And I think that's completely fascinating. Had no idea that this went on. Yeah. And I'll just, again, you're right. I don't, we don't want to spoil the ending, but, uh, or even the middle, but, the what people don't know, and and if you look on if you look on uh, the back of the book, there's a blurb that I have from Admiral James Lyons, who who, was the, who is a four star admiral and former commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Actually, I actually have two blurbs from two admirals like that. But Lyons is the admiral that is actually giving the 75th Pearl Harbor anniversary address this year on December 7. And he knew nothing about this. No one does, basically, but he knew nothing about this. So I've been advising him and giving the documents. But the short version is Popoff warned the FBI on August 18, 1941, almost four months before Pearl Harbor, that the Japanese were planning to uh, planning to attack Pearl Harbor. And I won't give the details of what it's all in the book. The documents are in the book. Uh, the main document has never been seen before in public, but one that I actually copied out of the FBI files from the National Archives. The Admiral Lyons had not even seen that, knew nothing about it, because Hoover kept it buried. It was all classified. Hoover kept everything buried. 
throughout his entire life and, and went to his grave with, with none of this information coming out. There were eight Pearl Harbor investigations. Not a one knew anything about this document, anything about Popoff's meeting, or anything about Popoff. It's interesting. Yeah, and you get into the details. And it's really fascinating. Um, but while he was in America, um, Popoff uh, was, covers was potentially, you know, blown because he like he's the, you know living up to the the Playboy stereo, you know, Playboy spy stereotype that he lived. He started a relationship with a movie star named Simone Simon. That's, right. Yeah, that's her name. And uh, the famous journalist, Walter Winchell, uh, wrote an article about this. And um, at this time, too, as like you said, Popov's information he was applying to the Germans was getting pretty crappy. So he had, the Germans were calling him back for an accounting. And this is where the title of your book comes from. You said that this is sure. when Popov was jumping into the lion's mouth. Why was it so dangerous for Popov? And what was it sure. about his personality that he was able to, you know, jump into the lion's mouth, but then come out yep. unscathed? Well, in fact, people always ask, where, where, where does the title come from, Into the Lion's Mouth? And if you look in the front of the book, between the copyright page and the table of contents, there are two quotes there. And the top one, this is where the title comes from. The top one is from Lieutenant Commander Ewan Montague, also with British intelligence, a, a colleague of Ian Fleming that had the same the same office uh, rank, lieutenant commander. Montague was essentially one of his case officers. He would meet regularly with Popoff to craft what they called uh, uh, chicken feed, false information to feed to them. For example, like mine charts around around uh, Britain, which were wrong, but not wrong by a lot. But if you're bringing a ship in and you think a mine is here and it's not, you avoid this area, and then they're, of course, showing an open area where there actually are mines. So anyway, he worked real closely with you and Montague, and Montague said about Popoff this quote, he had the steel within, the ruthlessness, and the cold-blooded courage that enabled him to go back to the German Secret Service headquarters in Lisbon and Madrid time and again when it was likely that he was blown. It was like putting his head into the lion's mouth. So that's where the quote comes from. So... Yeah, you're right. The Essentially, the biggest thing that, that blew his cover was the FBI would not let him send his messages to the Avar, which he was supposed to do. They were sending it on his behalf, but they don't know all the details. They don't know all the codes. They, they can't, you know, he's been, he's been working for them now for a year, and he's got all of these codes and the way he responds and the information. And so they botch it. So they botch a lot of the information. They, Hoover doesn't trust him to send codes. He thinks he might be a real German agent. So he never gets to, he never gets to even see the, the, transmit, uh, the, the transmitted radio messages going back and forth. So the FBI botches that and com- combine that with the fact that they're getting no valuable information. They're like, something's wrong because he was brilliant for us right up until he went to America and then all of a sudden, it just all drops off. And now, let's see, he's got this girlfriend over there. He's dating this movie star. He's you know going to all these parties because he shows up, as you mentioned, Walter Winchell uh, has this very interesting short blurb in an, in an article. Um, and this is, he was nationally syndicated, so this was everywhere about Simone Simon dating. Her new toy is... is uh, uh, what they call him, Yugoslav diplomat, 
uh, and, and he had a caption, and that's no double talk, which the Germans said, what is that all about? Uh, Papa. So anyway, the Germans figured out something happened, and they're pretty sure that he's gone to the other side. Uh, in other words, become a double agent. And there are two, the British intercept two messages that show he's, he's blown. So the British said to him when they found out, uh, and it was time the Germans said, okay, you need to come back and report, report to Lisbon. The British knew at that point he was blown. And if he went back, he would be tortured and executed. And uh, so they said, you can't go back. You're blown. And he said, well, I have to. I mean, and, and we know in, in time that he's the, he's the only real great agent that the Germans have and, and, or that the British have to deceive the Germans. And, you know, they would eventually need him to deceive the Germans about D-Day. So anyway, so Popov is so courageous and he says, well, I have to go back. And they're like, no, 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 Duska, you can't. You'll be tortured. Do you understand? You'll be tortured and executed. And he said to his his case officer, uh, uh, Ian Wilson, and his supervisor for and MI5, Tar Robertson, Colonel Tar Robertson, he said, to, he said to them, well, they won't kill me right away. And his case officer said, you might wish they had. Right. And I mean, that's pretty chilling. That is. I mean, it just shows I me mean, that, again, it's sort of that James Bond, like, doubles may care yeah. attitude he had. Yeah, and, and he was just confident. He, he was so, he had so much confidence. He was so charming. He was so smart that he just believed that once he got back, he could talk his way out of it. He just believed that. He had such confidence. And if he got killed, he got killed. You know, he just knew, look, you know, my job is to help win the war. If I die, I die. So be it. But I'll die in a great cause. So, I mean, just ice water in his veins, this guy had. Right. And he did make it out of the lion's mouth. We won't tell how, because that's really... We won't tell how, exactly. The, the story is great of how he was able to do that. Um, I mean, going back to some more of this cool spy stuff, um, you also talk about uh, the OSS, or is it the OSS? Or British Secret Service, where they had this camp in Scotland where they bring in uh, William Fairbairn. Yep. Uh, this hand-to-hand like combat expert. Uh, yep. Can you tell us about Fairbairn and how you know the training that Popoff sure. did under him? Sure. The British decided um, this is before there are any commandos or any uh, agents like that that are trained to be commandos. The British decided that they needed basically a fast action, sort of like our Navy SEALs, some some group that they could just drop in anywhere that would be, be these great warriors that could just withstand anything. And so they asked uh, a gentleman by the name of Colonel Govins to start this hit squad commando group, which originally was only going to be about 500 soldiers. And uh, it eventually grew from there. But they said, you start this, this great commando group that we can just drop in anywhere. And, and Churchill definitely wanted this. So they founded what was called the SOE, the Special Operations Executive which is essentially like Navy SEALs, just a fast action, get in, get out, wreak havoc, destroy something, capture somebody, kill somebody. And so they set up this very secret, ultra-secret training in the middle of nowhere, which was a little town called Arasag, Scotland. And you can actually pull it up online and look at it, and you can see the uh, the actual the, the building that they were housed in is still there. In fact, I have some friends who had their daughter married in that building, but the building is still there. But it's literally in the middle of nowhere, 
and Govins needed the best of the best for both instruction in hand-to-hand combat and in armaments, rifles, uh, weapons, knives, pistols, machine guns. So he brought in as his main two instructors, the first one was the hand-to-hand combat guy, William Fairbairn, who was, in short, the baddest man on the planet. He was he headed the Shanghai police department, which Shanghai back then was this lawless city with gangs and thugs. And the word was, my research uh, at least estimated, that he had been, at that point, he had been in 600 fights, street fights. Knife fights, um, had scars all over his body, scars on his hands from knife fights. Um, I mean, he was just the baddest guy on the planet. He had gotten a black belt from the founder of judo. Um, and uh, Kano Jigoro was the founder of judo, got a black belt was from him, the first Westerner to do so. He took lessons in jiu-jitsu and aikido and boxing, all these other things. So he was just a walking lethal weapon. So that's who they brought in to train the commandos in hand-to-hand combat, which they did for Dusko. And then they brought in Eric Sykes, who who Fairbairn had recruited. He was he worked for Remington at the time, and 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 Fairbairn recruited him into the Shanghai Police Department, who was the weapons expert. So he was the weapons. He was the guy that would teach them about every single weapon you could find in the battlefield, all the German weapons, the Czech weapons, Polish weapons, everything Russian. And so they learned how to fire literally any machine gun, pistol, rifle. And then the two instructors, Fairbairn and Sykes, developed a commando knife called a fighting knife. And it's called the Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife, which is basically used by most military and commando groups even today. So that was the knife that they created for them to participate in, you know, knife fights. So that that was the guy that trained Popoff and there's a chapter in the book called the art of the silent kill. And I won't detail how that was done, but it's in the book and Fairbairn's specialty was the silent kill using your bare hands. And he taught pop off how to do that. So this is where pop off learned to be a double O. Exactly. Exactly. And in the, in the uh, epilogue of the book, I explained that he earned that double O <laughs> the way that Fleming envisioned it. Right. Um, so, you know, Popoff had an amazing career. Um, you know, he played a role in D-Day. We won't get into the details of that because it's fascinating. And it spoils, like I said, like we, like we said earlier, this book is a historical book, but it reads like a thriller. Um, so if we, that's why we've been like kind of coy with the, the like, hey, we don't want to spoil it because like it really does spoil it if you know the ending. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just say that D-Day was was the, um, you know, Popoff was was unsuccessful in in the U.S. using information about Pearl Harbor because Hoover ignored it. But he was very successful with D-Day because he did deceive the Germans about, and, and you know, we'll, we'll not spoil exactly how he does this, but he deceived the Germans about D-Day so that they thought we were attacking at Calais uh, instead of at Normandy where we did. And they thought that it was going to come in July because that's what Popoff told them. And of course, it comes, uh, you know, on June 6th. So he, both for the location and the time, and this, and Popoff did this over, but they, they, the Germans are very thorough. So they sent to Lisbon to grill him their best interrogators, SD, Gestapo, Abwar, their best seasoned interrogators to, inge- to interrogate him about the Allied plans for the invasion of France 
these interrogations would go on five, six, seven, eight hours at a time. And Popoff didn't miss a beat. Didn't miss a beat. So Popoff had this amazing career as a spy. Uh, and, you know, he learned how to kill people with his bare hands, did these crazy missions, um, you know, having to be duplicitous with the Germans, betting, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of British money on Bacharach, uh, lots of relationships with women. Uh, I mean, just amazing, just action-filled life. What did he do after the war? Well, let me just add one thing about it, because you mentioned women. We haven't talked about this. One of the things that James Bond is known for is his suave and and uh, successful way with women and womanizing and all of that. Ian Fleming said in an interview, a BBC interview, when he was asked about that, he said, look, my, my character, James Bond, really only has one girlfriend per book. It's only So he only really has one girlfriend per year. Top off, in real life, had two, three, four girlfriends in every city that he went to, Lisbon, Madrid, New York, Rio, um, everywhere. I mean, and, and I know because it's in the files. I mean, their names, their love letters, there are all these love letters. Cause remember the British would, would intercept all of the mail to see if it was, if they were German secret messages. So they're opening it. So they would get letter after letter. And, and so in the file and, and some of these, I, I, a couple of these, I, I, I know I put at least one in the book, but you'll see these these love letters that are in there, and they're like, "Who is this?" You know. And there were so many when he went and when he went to New York, they, they MI5 would get him a letter from a girl, and Popoff couldn't even remember who it was. He thought it was a German spy girlfriend, but he couldn't even remember. That's how many girls this guy went through. So anyway, okay, back to your question. So yeah, he had this exciting career uh, during World War II. What did he do after the war? Well, here's the, let me give you two parts. The, he continued, I mean, his cover during the war is as a businessman, as an export-import businessman. And he did it in real life. And, and unlike if you read Dr. No, you'll see that James Bond coincidentally happens to have the same cover, import-export, which he never does. But in real life, Popoff did. I mean, he actually had to affect business on a day-to-day basis as a businessman. And in the book, I talk about some of the deals and some were huge. There's a $14 million ship deal. Um, so after the war, he continues his business in export import in real life and, and builds this global company where he uh, travels all over the world, uh, still doing his business. He's involved in South Africa and helping their government, uh, doing a bond deal. I mean, he did some really high powered stuff. The second part is, well, did he continue as a secret agent. And I'll leave that to let, let people read at the end of the book. Cause I address it at the end of the book. Very good. Well, you know, Larry, this has been a great conversation. Um, and we've gotten a pretty, you know, bird's eye view of Popoff's career. I'm curious as you researched and wrote about Popoff, uh, did you gleam any life lessons from him on being a man? Absolutely. There are, I mean, I guess I would say probably about five, four or five different areas where, uh, and a lot of it overlaps to things that you have put in blogs and so forth. And I would just say they were these. Number one, courage. This guy, a, a man has courage even when, when he knows that there are great risks of, of danger to himself and sometimes bodily harm. And Popov was just one of the most courageous characters that I've ever read about. Like we talked about earlier, he goes back to Lisbon so that he can help defeat Hitler, even though he's been told 
you're going to be tortured and executed. That that takes, you know, some chutzpah to to do that. So he's willing to give his own life uh, for the cause. And uh, so the first lesson on on being a man is just is courage. The second, and this is all over Popoff's career and, and all over the book, is decision making. A, a man makes decisions, and um, Popoff was very independent. He was his own man and had his own mind. And I think that's important for men to do: is to do your own research, figure it out, do the hard work, and make a decision. This is not a guy that that would take a poll. You know, he he, he would not really ask anyone. Well, what's your thinking? What's your thought? He would do his own research and make up his own mind and make a decision. And, and that's a very attractive trait and something that that we as men, you know, really should be should be doing it is, is being able to make a decision. And, and he did that. And, you know, one of the reasons he was a perfect spy was because he could make a snap decision on the spot with the pressure on uh, and, and be right. So that would be the second one is just decision making. The third is he was a gentleman. He was chivalrous. He he uh, had manners. Did he date all of these women? Yes. Some of them actually were German spies, and they were trying to get information from him. So they're using women as bait to try to get. And, and of course, they don't do it. But so he's a gentleman. He knows. In our day, we would say, "Okay, you open the door for a woman. You stand when a woman comes to the table." Um, and so forth. Those were things that were just ingrained to him, that he was a perfect gentleman. And Simone Simon, who is this famous movie star that he dates, she she was one of the top stars in Hollywood at the time. And she absolutely was crazy about him. And and in her uh, interviews and things, she would talk about her mom. She lived with her mother in, she had a, a, an apartment in New York, and she stayed in the Beverly Hills Hotel in, um, uh, in, in, in Hollywood. But when she was in New York, she stayed with her mother. And so Disco is dating her and has to go to you know, talk to mom while Simone's getting ready. And mom loved him. And the, even though he's this James Bond, dates all of these women, he was a perfect gentleman with uh, Simone and Simone's mother. And Simone's mother loved him. So he was a gentleman, he was chivalrous, and, and that's something that, you know, we want to aspire to be as, as men as well. Uh, as I mentioned, he was very well-rounded. I mean, he spoke five language, he was cultured, he was adept at society, he was a great athlete, he was a reader, uh, he, was, he was good with his hands, he could take care of himself. Um, in fact, there's a story that um, uh, after uh, years after the war, he went to the Bahamas and for an interview, and there was a quote-unquote bad guy that showed up that was harassing them and the journalist who I got this information from to pop off in a calm but very confident manner basically told the guy uh, you need to disappear or else and the bad guy did I guess pop off was so confident and and just it was clear that he was he did not suffer fools well or criminals and the journal said I was just stunned because Popoff just ran him off just by talking to the guy. Um, and lastly, I would say, you know, part of being a man, he was extremely confident without being arrogant. And, and, and there's, there's often a fine line there between being confident and being arrogant. But 
the you know all of the files and all the information that I saw in my research and interviews and so forth, he was extremely confident without being arrogant. And that's a hard so line think, to balance. It's a hard line yeah, to so balance on. Yeah, yeah. Well, Larry, uh, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about uh, Into the Lion's Mouth? Well, they can, uh, just for some of the details and so forth, they can look at my website, LarryLoftus.com, or easier to remember, RealJamesBond.com. The book's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. I mean, the book's everywhere, so they can go online and, and get it. And all of the review boards and stuff are on there, so they can see all that on, on Amazon, so any of those places. Excellent. Well, Larry Loftus, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, Brett. Thanks for having me. My guest today was Larry Loftus. He's the author of the book, Into the Lion's Mouth. You can find that on Amazon.com. Go check it out. It really, it's a historical book that reads like fast-paced spy fiction. Uh, you can find out more information in the book at LarryLoftus.com. Also, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash bond. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, I thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.